And welcome back to Insemination. I am so excited for our next guest. She is not just an exceptionally wonderful friend of mine. She is a amazing advocate for the donor-conceived community. She is also a therapist and a renowned author. She specializes in infertility trauma and has such amazing advice on how to tell your child that they are donor-conceived. So without further ado, let's bring on Jana Rupnow. So welcome to Insemination. Jana, how are you doing today? Hi. Man, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here, Laura. I'm very excited. I am so excited to have you here because I have had, I, I think, some of like my best donor-conceived talks with you out of like anybody. Oh. I love talking about this subject specifically with you. You're such like a fountain of knowledge and your history with like, you know, working in this industry, like, you know, with people in this industry is like so vast. So I always, I'm so excited that I get to have a conversation with you that I get to share with the masses. Sweet. I, I feel the same way. I feel the same way. And you know, I've said that to you as well. You get it, you get it quickly. You know, I don't have to explain things that you know, 10 years, 15 years of, of information. So it's it's refreshing. Yeah. Uh, and, and so is you. And I think with the work that you do is so desperately, desperately needed. Um, and I'd love to just jump right in and not keep uh, any of our listeners waiting and just start with first your story. Um, I okay, love Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, obviously, so I know that you're not donor conceived, but you are right. actively part of the baby business as well. So, you know, <laughs> we are, as I like to like to say, we're, we're both, um, we're, we're two siblings of the same dysfunctional family of the baby business. True. Yes. I, I'm an adoptee. So I was adopted at in infancy, my twin brother and I, and domestic. So, uh, in the States here and back that back then it was a closed adoption system. Uh, Universally, I mean, it just was. And so I grew up not knowing who my uh, biological parents were mm -hmm. and, you know, have a good, a wonderful, loving family. But I was the one, I was the curious one. I was the one who wanted to know more, you know, the deep thinker, the, you know, analyze everything. Mm -hmm. And so I was curious and thought about it a lot. And I, I didn't really share with my parents how often I thought about it just because it was my inner world. Um, but I did. And I ended up finding my birth father when I was 20. Wow. Um, yeah, went to the court, through the court in the state I was born, petitioned a judge. Actually, didn't have to go through court. I just actually wrote a letter to the judge. Said, oh, my can God. I open, yeah. Can I open my record for health reasons? And it, it was easy in that state. And he granted me the uh, access to those records. So I flew to Montana, where I was born. And uh, got went to the courthouse that my mom actually worked in, and the person there behind the register behind the the, the door said, oh, "Jana, I remember you and your brother when you were this tall." Oh and my god! Like, okay, hi, and uh, and she's like, "Here's your birth certificate." Oh my god! And I'm looking at my biological father's name for the first time, and I'm like, "Oh, this is crazy," you know. And so I'm like, "Now what do I do?" And she said, "How about looking in the phone book?" So she pulls out the phone book. A phone, phone book. book. Boom, I love it. To the page, there he is. I mean, there he is. And I got his phone number. And then I ha actually had somebody help me contact him. I didn't want to do it myself. So I had a, yeah. a psychologist I had met on an airplane uh, two years prior. He was meeting his birth mom for the first time in New York City. <laughs> and we traded, and he was from the area. Long story short, he ends up connecting and calling my birth father. My birth father went to meet him in his office. And 
he did that for the first time. So it was great. It was, it took the pressure off me yeah. to not have to have like this person say, get out of my life. Don't, don't ever contact me again. You Yo, know, the buddy like system can be great. It really yeah. like, yeah, do. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Activate the buddy system when contacting genetic family. Yes, absolutely. And so that was my story as a personal. So I got into therapy and I started in the adoption field. So I was counseling adoptees, uh, families who were actually infertile, and then um, moving on to a non-traditional way of building their family. Uh, I was I got into that because I had gone through that. My husband and I had our first son uh, without any trouble, and then we couldn't get pregnant a second time. We had secondary infertility. Mm. And so I began, uh, I was finishing up my graduate program, doing my internship, and just drawn to that. You know, we and started working with the agency that we adopted through. And um, when I saw the, the families that were infertile and trying to adopt and just mm-hmm. saw the pain that they were all going through. So in, adoption stopped. International adoption really kind of came to a halt in tw- about 2006. Mm-hmm. And that's when I was talking to my fertility doctor at the time. And he said, have you thought of donor conception counseling? And so I was like, well, what is it? And he told me. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of overlap. That makes a lot of sense, you yeah. know, because at the time they were even calling it back in the day, like semi-adoption, donor conception. Yeah. I mean, th- yeah. I, I think that that's a, a phrase that a lot of people do not like to use nowadays. Like we don't want to yeah. recognize that, but it, it it is, it is like you are, there is half an adoption. There absolutely is. And so it was more normalized a couple decades ago. That's really interesting. Yeah, they used to call it that. I know back in like the time of, I think, Peter Bonney, you know, him, he was, um, I think he was born in 46 or something, mm-hmm. and they called it semi-adoption. Um, some In some areas, they did call it semi-adoption. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So yeah. you were seeing all this. You were seeing that essentially, as I like to say, the Venn diagram of adoption and donor conception. Yeah. You obviously already had your story, so there was an understanding of missing your genetic oh we didn't even how how did the how did it go with meeting your biological father oh yeah jumping all over um it went really good so um we had a good connection and he uh, his personality is more like mine I think than like my birth mother so connected with his family and you know I think the first call or the second call with him all of his his brother and his sisters were there and he, they literally passed me around. Oh my goodness. And like here in the phone and like passing around, I got to talk to every one of them and they were all so sweet and so excited and it was really wonderful. Oh so, my yeah. God. I didn't meet my birth mom though, my biological mom until 10, until 20 years later because wow. she had another set of twins that were only 10 years old at the time. And she hadn't, I learned later, she hadn't told her husband yet that she had placed oh my God. Uh, babies for adoption. So he didn't know. So I was a, I was a secret still in, in that, in that family um, until, you know, later when they divorced and, and then I met her when I was 40. So how did that feel? That's a complex cookie right there. It was, it was hard because it, you know, I, there was just a lot of unknowns. Like why she didn't come out and tell me that at the time. Yeah. She just like wrote a letter and, there was just never a mention of I want to meet you or anything. And mm-hmm. so it was just sort of unsaid, like it ends here for now. Oh, so it's just geez. weird. There's just a lot of unknown and a lot of just trying to figure things out and not really having an answer. So, so secrecy definitely is a, a theme here. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can see why I, <laughs> I talk so much about secrecy. Yes. And I try to get people to be open because you know what? I naturally am not, I'm not a lover of secrets. I just, I'm really just like it all to be out in the open mm-hmm. and transparent. It's just so much easier for, for, you know, and f- it's more freeing. So, well, and, and we both know, and I'm sure we're going to talk about more about it, but the fact that the, at least the infertility industry, um, thrives on secrecy has thrived on yeah. secrecy and, and also, yeah. I mean, the adoption industry as, as well. Um, but it, these industries, the baby industry thrives on, let's keep this hush hush because if right. you keep everything secret, then nobody asks any questions and nothing yeah. is discovered. No, and we we know as you know as we've been slowly pulling that veil back and realizing like and we're watching the you know man the man behind the curtain we're realizing oh shit this has all been horrific this is why there's been so yeah. many secrets is because yeah. of the unethical practices and it, and it, you know as you talk about it, it actually like I right here in like that right under like the top of my stomach I start to feel sick like I I literally it makes me feel sick because. I know what those secrets do to families. They hurt. Yeah. Well, let's let's go into they that. Really hurt. So let's talk about yeah. your work and what you have been now doing. Um, mm-hmm. and the the patients that you have been working with right now. Can you describe yeah. to to our listeners what what you've actively been doing? Okay. So now I counsel people before they're going to do a procedure. So they come to me for like this. Um, some of the doctors are requiring it, but not all. Fertility doctors require the a couple or individual um, to come to see me prior to doing the procedure. So prior to using egg, sperm, or embryo um, donation. And I do uh, education. So I will inform them ab- about, and I'm mine's really child-focused, so I'm going to tell them what are the, you know. We love a child love- focus. <laughs> we love that. Yeah. Well, it's hard not to be with your me, right? I mean, yeah. that was me. So how could I not? I mean, I, I brought that my lived experience to the table. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just telling them, like, have you thought of the long-term implications and like kind of here's what you want to think about. Here's how things might be, you know, might impact your family in the future. And starting 10 years ago when I started this, I really started with secrecy because most clients, eight out of 10 came into my office and said, we plan on keeping this a secret from our child. That's what our doctor told us to do. That's all we know to do. Or we just haven't talked about it to anybody. This is going to be a secret period. So let's, there's so many things to unpack there. There there were so many red flags. Uh, So first off the doctor saying, keep it a secret. Yeah. The doctor. Yeah. How, and this was early 2000s. 2010. Oh God. So this so, was, this was just over 10 years ago that yeah. doctors were, were saying, now we know that they're that, saying like, uh, don't, don't worry about it. Just go home and, and you know, don't, you don't need to think about it. It's not that big a deal. It's oh your Oh my kid. God. And this it's was in kid. 2010. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, my Most God. people were coming to me that were go- planning on keeping it a secret. And I spent most of my energy and time in that hour session, which is all I had trying to educate them on the harm of secrets the the reason that they should be honest with their child um and and to start with honesty yeah why when people would come to you what would be their reasoning as to why it should be a secret they why should their kid know it doesn't matter um it, it really doesn't matter we're going to treat them the same they're our kid and and isn't it just going to give them more problems if we tell them that they're just going to be you know they're going to feel bad 
They're going to feel different. They're going to feel like they're not part of the family. Why would we do that to our kid? Yeah, that was their main reason. And I mean, you know, like I would put myself in their mindset as a therapist and I would be like, okay, yeah, I guess I can see how they, they don't want to, their child to suffer. So they think not telling them would cause their child to suffer more than telling them. And I mean, vice versa. I said that wrong. And that they, they basically thought if they didn't tell them yeah. that they would suffer less than if they told them. And that was kind of something that I had to go, okay, like with my lived experience, how do I back this up and explain to them that the the harm that can come from this and the the damage that they could be doing in their family. And not only that, all I could think about was that kid that's coming into the picture. That's all I could think about was that yeah. kid that wasn't going to know the truth. And it just, it ate me up at night. And that kid who obviously doesn't have a choice. Um, and this, this is it. And the parents are actively choosing to have a child this way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actively, this is a choice that they're making. So now I have to say, I, I love that, you know, obviously what these parents were, you know, actively, uh, th- their tactics, I obviously 100% disagree with. And I, it, it, it makes me very sick to my stomach. And anybody watching this on YouTube watched my face like almost throw up. Uh, as you were describing that, but I still do appreciate so much that you were actively communicating with empathy because I do think that that is needed. If we're going to get recipient parents to start helping unravel the unethical behavior of the infertility industry, we need recipient parents on our side. And the only way to do that is to empathize with them. So I have to say that, like, I I appreciate the fact that you were empathizing with them and not just going like, I mean, obviously, as a therapist, you're not going to go like, fuck you. But like, (laughs) I do think I do agree with that tactic. I I do think that it is needed. Um, And I know that it's honestly, it wasn't a tactic because it was a but I see what you're saying. Like, I guess in, in when I'm thinking, I was remember I was actually had experienced infertility myself. Yeah. So I had been through those and and kind of was still in the cusp of it, like at the mm. yeah, I was still sort of in the middle of it to be honest. In 2010, um, we had already adopted our, my daughter and she was five, but I still wanted that third child. You know, I was I was still all I was still dealing with the grief. Um, so I had a lot of empathy because I was living that world too. So I literally was in both worlds, like totally in both worlds. I was, I had been through infertility and wanted a child, another child, knew how hard it was to adopt. We did it and knew it. International adoption was over. Domestic adoption was tough. Um, Yeah. So I I got it. Like I did really empathize truly. So I think right now we are just like fully entering into your book. Um, So let's just start saying that. So Jana is a fantastic author of the book, Three Makes a Baby, which if you are watching this video on YouTube, uh, you can... You can uh, see it right behind her. Um, yeah, there that's it. There it is. There yes. it is. It's available on Amazon. Um, please, please get it. It's a very, very easy read. If you're a quick reader, you'll read it in a couple hours. If you need to take time, it's going to take you a day. It's very, um, it's easy to consume. But let's that go. Was my goal. Yeah. No, I think you you absolutely nailed it. And I think this is the book that if you are thinking about donor conception or you have already a donor conceived child please purchase this. 
please, this is absolutely a, mu- a must. This is a step in the right direction. But since we're we're essentially talking about the book anyway, let's let's just at least name what what we're talking about. So let's talk about infertility trauma because I don't think that that is highlighted and talked about enough. How would you describe infertility trauma? Yeah, the best way I would describe it is really with a word complicated grief. Mm-hmm. Um, complicated grief is a uh, is an experience where, and we can experience it in, for many different losses, not just infertility, but it happens after we've had multiple losses that pile up on each other, for lack of a better way to say it, mm-hmm. and we don't have time to process the loss yeah. and, and fully grieve it. And infertility is a complicated grieving process because it's not just one loss. So if it's, uh, you know, there's multiple losses that can happen along the way, whether it's uh, a loss of a a procedure doesn't work, a loss of a baby, um, loss of control, loss of income. There's so many losses. And I name those, but uh, that's, so that becomes a form of grieving and trauma that a lot of people don't recognize as such. Mm -hmm. So when we have, you know, other losses, like a, a loss of a, of a loved one, we have a formalized way to, to recognize that and support each other, a funeral and, you know, bringing food and just, there's ways we come together mm-hmm. for infertility. It's a very isolating and lonely loss and, and grieving process. And people aren't there to support you. Um, especially back in 2010, it's gotten better, but that was before Instagram. <laughs> no, so, And also, I mean, 2010 so. was not that long ago. It really, really wasn't. Um, and, and I'm, I'm just still a little stuck on the fact that even in 2010, doctors were saying, you don't need to tell your kid. I mean, I know that was like the norm in the 80s and 90s, but in 2010. So now if somebody has infertility trauma, why would you, what, why as a, as a therapist, would you recommend um, talking to somebody first before immediately just doing donor conception without talking to somebody? Like what are the benefits of getting treated for infertility trauma before you start looking into donor conception? Yeah. Well, I say that, um, that grief time travels. And when I say that, what I mean is it gets passed on through families. And so trauma that's like infertility trauma can actually show up in your parenting and in the way you parent your child and it can get passed on. So if you haven't fully come to terms with that infertility grief, grief, the losses that you experienced, mm-hmm. especially if you're going to use a donor or adopt and you've lost that genetic connection to your child, then you are, you, it could show up in ways that you don't even realize that it's showing up. In what um, kind of ways could it show up? Like what, what's a couple of examples? Yeah. An example would be that you notice that your child, your child's different than you expected. Like you had that, that child that you thought was going to be like you, and then you end up with a child who's different. They don't have the traits that you expected them to have. Maybe they're not interested in the same things you're interested in. And so you begin to recognize that and you try to steer them away from who they really are. Maybe you try to get them to be more like you or get it, be into a, a hobby that you do because it's, it, it, you would have something in common. So you don't recognize them for who they are because you're still hanging on to that dream child that you thought you wanted that you, well, you wanted that you spent true. a lot of money on as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you begin to maybe resent commodification the child. of children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you you resent maybe the child's differences. Mm-hmm. Maybe you were like, "Dang, this isn't the child that I wanted." And you know, and maybe you take it out on the child, or maybe you you're harder on them. 
you know, or maybe you expect more of them. So it's, that's just a way that your grief can show up um, mm-hmm. in, in not coming to terms and not accepting the losses that, and the different child that is coming. Cause it's not going to be the child that you thought was coming. Yeah. So why would, why would you tell your child that they're donor conceived in your, how would you phrase that when a parent comes to you and they're like, well, why should I tell them? Yeah. Well, I tell people, you know, I'm sure that you believe in modeling honesty and establishing trustworthiness and that if you want a relationship, remember we spend most of our time in relationship with our kids. We will in an adult to adult relationship, Mm -hmm. not, you know, those 18 years go by fast. Then if you value that, then it's important to be honest from the start and, and to model that to them and, you know, show them how to respond to any challenges that might come their way. I love that answer. And that makes me so happy. Oh, yeah, I love it. So when you say also from the start, because uh, yeah. this is something that gets asked all the time on my TikTok and all the time on my social media is when is the best time to tell your child that they're donor conceived? Yeah, like right away, as soon as they're a baby, like as soon as they come out, even during pregnancy, um, because, you know, really, because you just want to start talking about it. You want it to be just like this conversation that we're telling our story. You know, when we've been through something, what it is helpful to tell the story, mm-hmm. you know, so tell the story, start talking about it. And How? I know that's hard because there's shame and there's secrecy and there's like embarrassment maybe, but um, I think but that's, that's also why you need it. to get treated for infertility trauma is to work through that shame. To work through it. And remember, telling our story is how we heal from it as well. You know, with trusted people, you don't have to go out to the internet and tell it, but you can if that works too, like I have. <laughs> now, so. oh, and I'm right there with you. Um, yeah. So how, and again, I get this question all the time. Um, so you're looking at, you're looking at your three-year-old, you're looking at your two-year-old. How mm-hmm. do you, how do you have that conversation? How do you go yeah. like, hey, you're a sperm donor, baby. Like how, how do right. you have that conversation <laughs> when they're that little? Right. Well, when they're that little, you'll, you're using age-appropriate language, so you are forming a concept. So it's like, hey, we needed help to have you. We really wanted, we tried hard. We got help to have you, and we're so glad you're here. You know, you can, um, when they're when they're a baby, you can even say things, like you can tell the story. They may not get it. Like, you know, we, we used our friend Kiki as a donor, or we used, um, or, you know, we, we a, a person that helped us make you is somebody we don't know yet, but maybe we'll know them someday, you know? So there's ways that you can sort of just start telling the story. You can do it with children's books that use that age appropriate language um, from the time they're little. Would you have recommendations of those books for our wonderful, for our wonderful listeners? Absolutely. My favorite is so when they're really little and I know we don't have, I don't know of any board books yet. So that's the only thing. So the little ones might tear it up. You might need to get a couple copies, but um, is a happy together children's book because, and, and the author has a lot of different uh, variations of story. So two moms, two dads, solo mom, um, a surrogacy story. Oh, so, I love the inclusivity. Yes. 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 And um She's got those, and those are great because they just form the co- concept that we're a family. We needed help to have you. Mm-hmm. We went to the go- doctor and got help, and we love you so much. And that's the beginnings, right? And you don't have to go into IVF. You don't have to go into sperm and egg if you don't want to. 
you can wait until they're just a little bit older mm-hmm. and, you know, and they can start to understand those terms. Um, because it's just about that concept. So keeping it simple, keeping it simple early on. Ah, oh, ah, oh, I love this. Warms my little DCP heart. Okay. <laughs> um, what if I'm, I'm right now just, just totally going off of themes of your book. Um, when a social parent and for anybody who doesn't know, um, a social parent is the non-biological parent. What would you say to the parent? And if they don't feel like a real parent. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. So that's something that comes up almost right out of the gate mm-hmm. is uh, even before they've done the procedure is I, I'm so afraid I'm not going to be the real parent. Here's how it really comes up. I am so afraid they're going to say to me, you're not my real parent. You're not mm-hmm. my real mom. You're not my real dad. Oh, my God. And for you know, the record, like I've <laughs> never even once thought that about my social father, my my dad. I've never once in my entire life as as a DCP never once thought that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for all donor conceived people, but like yeah. not even a flash in my head, even like when my dad and I, like I was screaming at my dad, never once a second. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, the parent is the person that's there for you every day. So, but I will say my daughter said this to me when she was really little, I was expecting it when she was in her teenage years, but she said it before the age of six. Wow. Yeah. She's like, you're not my role. I was so glad that I was prepared for it because yeah, um, I didn't overreact. You know, I was just like, well, of course I'm your real parent, but like, are you just mad that you might be mad right now that I asked you to clean your room but if it's about but if you'd like to talk about your birth mom like let's do that too I'm open to that you know so it's like this say calm calm confidence calm confidence you know? yeah calm yeah. confidence guy I love that calm confidence oh my god mm-hmm. I'm gonna use that the next time I'm dealing with trolls online calm confidence <laughs> right oh you my. might have to remind me to do, to do the same oh so, yeah all right <laughs> I know, I know. So what, so we, we've gone over so fear of, if I don't feel like a real parent, what happens, what about people who worry about like, what if um, people are going to treat our family differently? Yeah. Yeah. Social, the social aspect is huge, huge. And I, I talked to a lot of couples before they've even chosen donor conception. So they're infertile. They've been through IVF after IVF and eggs aren't working. Their sperm isn't working. They've done microtest microtessy, which it finds sperm. They've mm-hmm. done everything under the sun. Um, and they're contemplating the use of a donor. And that's one of their biggest fears is none of my friends are going through this. I don't have anybody to talk to. About I mean, this. one bullshit. They absolutely are. Let's just be honest. Someone right. is- and that's the truth. Yeah, they are they because so are. many people are not talking about it, but yeah. they are going through it as well. Oh, yeah. It's so common. So I think that feeling is, is, is super powerful for a lot of people. And um, that feeling of not fitting in. And, you know, I think the best thing you can do is remind them that there are people that are going through it, like Mm -hmm. you said, that they can talk to. They may not be in their neighborhood. Um, And that this is the hardest part. Their story is going to be different. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Like, that's okay. So there's an acceptance Mm -hmm. that has to come with it. And that takes some therapy sometimes to get to that place of acceptance. Um, and that's what I, that's what I talk about is, is I try to kind of try to welcome people to the land of differences. Here we are, you know, let's embrace it and, yeah. um, and not reject our story because when we reject our story, when the parents are rejecting their story, which is I couldn't have a biological child, but I'm going to pretend like it is. 
that's rejecting your story. That's self-rejection. That's rejecting your own family story. And that is not going to send a good message to your child. It's also going to reject your child because your exactly. child can't, your child can't get away from that truth of how they were that's made. Right. It's exactly. literally their DNA and you're rejecting the story. You are rejecting the child. Exactly. You're, you're right. You're and you can, that can send the message to the child that they should reject the parts of themselves yeah. that aren't like you. Right. And, and, yes, oh my God, yes. in, and yes, this can happen in biological families. The first answer I get when, when I say this to people, oh, that happens in biological families too. True, but we're not talking about biological families. And, and there's an added element of complexity with donor conceived families or adoptive families in which that they actually are different genetically. It's always the thing that, you know, I, I always get is like, there's plenty of people go like, well, there are some, you know, people who don't have their medical history that have biological family members. And I'm like, yeah, sure. But there wasn't a multi-billion dollar industry that profited off of your creation. That's, the, yeah. that's a big difference. That's a huge difference. And I think that's what people don't realize is that this is being done on purpose. This isn't, I don't it's have systematic. my history because, yeah, I don't have it because, you know, it didn't work out and, 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 and my father ran off. You know, no one can control that. We can control, we can have some say in what is happening mm -hmm. in a industry that's profiting from the creation of these families. Oh, Yes. I okay yeah you see this is why again and I, I hope all you followers like can understand like why I absolutely love talking to Jana anytime <laughs> Jana and I get to get on the phone I'm like all right we're gonna get my vodka I'm gonna talk to Jana and we're just yes. this is gonna be so good you guys get ah I love it okay um what have you learned from your recipient parents since you've been doing this now what what are things that you have learned about donor conception and the infertility industry and infertility trauma and donor conceived people. Like what, what have you learned that has surprised you? Hmm. What my head first goes to is how unfortunate it is that there, that people are, that are coming into that are experiencing infertility and the shame and the isolation and the loneliness of it that then you know, are going to fertility providers for a solution that they feel so helpless and at the mercy of the providers, which are also doing wonderful things. Of course, they're creating babies that maybe that the couples wouldn't be able to have in a different time. Yeah. So I get that it's, it's miraculous. But what I hear time and time again from my clients is how the providers and the medical model has failed them in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from, and, and there's the lack of information, the lack of information that they're getting. Yeah. Um, so I think there's so much, I have so many dreams about what can be improved, you know, in this process of helping people, you know, from the beginning and informing them properly, because what else I've learned is that once they do get that knowledge, many parents and information, because it started to happen about three years ago, that I started to see a shift and a change where most of my parents now that come to me, my intended parents are, are going to tell. So I have seen progress. That and is, because, that is so fantastic to hear. It's it. Because, it yeah. yeah. Because they're getting the information. Of course, they're also coming to me. So maybe they've heard that I'm all about telling, but um, you know, 
they're getting that information now. And so what I'm seeing is parents that they really want to do what's best. They really do. They are hungry for information and they, they are. I've almost, seen that as well. Like yeah. I get so many DMS from recipient parents going like, I really want to make sure that I'm Cause I'm like, I've either, I have a, I, the, Oh God, the amount of DMS I get that are like, I have a six month old donor conceived child. I I'm so scared. I already screwed everything up. Oh my God. I don't want to traumatize right. my kid. What do I have to do? And it's like, Oh my yeah. God, pumpkin bless your heart. I, I know. Oh, and I, I always tell them, I'm like, look, the fact that you're just messaging me and the fact that you're showing this much like care and worry tells me everything I need to know. Like, look, that's you, what I say too. Yeah. I'm like, exactly. I, I'm like, it's that's the parents who are, yeah. It's the parents who are like, eh, why do I have to do that? Then I'm like, oh my God, the lack of humility is delightful. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's other things. I mean, I, I early on screened egg donors too. I don't do that anymore, but I did for about, uh, gosh, probably about eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I learned so much about that end of it, the donor's side too. So it was really fun. I got to be in this position of seeing the recipient parents and the donors at, you know, like not the same time, but I, I would talk to each of them separately. Yeah. Well, so I, what did you learn from that experience? Well, I learned that most egg donors that I met with, for one, they weren't, I was educating them at a level where I was going into detail about how their future, the, the child that was born from their donation might feel. And, and, and this was a surprise. They <sighs> yeah, they didn't know. They thought, "Oh no, it's it's not my kid." Like, and I was like, "But you know, the child it's literally your may, biological child may it's... feel differently than that." And they're like, yeah. "Really? Oh, okay, okay." You know, because they, they were just young, and so they didn't understand. Yeah, this, right. I literally. Just, I had one tell me that it was like donating blood, and I was like, "Wait, no, 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 no." I the the top two <laughs> comments I get about egg donation are, "It's just donating blood," or "It's just like giving up a period." And I'm like, "Wait, no, it's no, not, not, it's not even a like little that. bit, no, not no. even how the the level of compartmentalization and disassociation is absolutely delightful. I love it." Um, yeah, no, and I get this from donors all, all the time, uh, and whether that's egg or sperm donors, um, you know, it's the amount of times where you you there you literally have to spell out to them it is your biological child. Yeah, and People it's like they're real. It. No, and it's like they're realizing it for the first time, and it's, it's true. like it's true. And I will say, like, I do blaze, uh, pl- I do blaze, yes, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, that was a uh, combination of blame slash place, so I blaze. I like it, I like it, yeah. Yes, I blaze the clinics and cryobanks because they work so hard at keeping oh. that away from the donors. They actively do not want to, th- want them to think yeah. about the donor conceived child. All they want them to think about is your spring break that you're about to pay for your books, your student loans, because it is mm-hmm. college students most of the time. Um, because, Hey, they l- like to set up pop-up stands on college campuses. I've spoken to donors who are like, yeah, they came into my lecture hall at the end of class. Like it is terrifying. Um, so let, let us move into the industry a little bit more because you yeah. have been actively working, trying to work with the industry Longer than a lot of people have. And you have been talking, negotiating with clinics, cryobanks, and ASRM. ASRM, for anyone who doesn't know, is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. They are the ones who basically constitute the guidelines for the clinics and cryobanks to follow within the United States. 
Now, I need you to, I need to underline the word guidelines. These are not regulations. These are guidelines. They are optional for these places to follow. So how has your dealings with ASRM been? Yeah, well, okay. I have just first, when I came into this business, I, I was, I would say I was naive. Um, I, you know, I had my lived experience and I, I knew the guidelines, the ASRM guidelines. I joined ASRM right, right away in 2010. Um, and I was shocked to see that the guidelines weren't being followed for the most part. So like clients would come to me and they would tell me things and, and I would be like, well, hang on. Your doctor told you, it says here in the guideline that we recommend, the ASRM rec- recommends disclosure. Disclosure means tell your child. It says here, right, it says right here, like I wouldn't hold that up to them, but I, to myself. And then I, and then, but your doctor told you it's no big deal. It's don't, don't worry about it. It's your kid. Don't, you don't have to say anything. I, what the hell's going on? So like, immediately, honestly, I was yeah. like, what the hell's going on? And I remember it was just me because I was independent and I would go to my husband and he's worked in healthcare a long time. And I was like, what's going on here? And, and, you know, help me to, because this is, and, and I would just get so, I would, my mind would be blown, but I'd have no one to talk to about yeah. it. That what the things I saw, the things I heard happening. I, I mean, I, it was so frustrating to feel like, is it anybody else seeing this? Like, yeah. is, does anybody else know what's going on? And how can this be going on? How can this be happening? And again, I want to underline, this was in 2010. This was not the 1980s. This is not the 1990s. This was just over 10 years ago. So anybody yeah. listening, this was very recent. Well, and so what would happen is like, I would do a report. So I would see, um, you know, I'd, I'd see an egg donor and the it would you know, I would get a result that would be questionable, you know, like for, to do an evaluation on an egg donor, you do an interview and then you do a, um, an objective test like the Mm -hmm. MMPI, sometimes the PAI. Back then I was doing MMPI and I was using, uh, Dr. Caldwell himself, who is like wrote books on, like he did the MMPI for like Jeffrey Dahmer or something. I mean, this guy is a master. Like, yeah, I I hate that that his name came up in this uh, conversation, (laughs) Uh, but, um, but he's a master at it. So he wrote all these books. So I was using him for the reports Mm -hmm. Um, and I would get the report back and it would be iffy. And I'd call an egg agency and I would be like, Hey, you know, this person may have bipolar disorder. No judgment on that. It's just something that the parents would need to know. Yeah. That's genetic. Um, yeah. And, uh, they have indications for it. I had one interview with them. What do you know about him? I had a, an agency just basically berate me and tell me that I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, why did all, why did therapists all love to use the MMPI and it's, I think it's so great. And she wasn't a clinician. She wasn't a, you know, a therapist. She was a, an owner of an egg bank. And she literally just said, just tell me yes or no, are you going to pass this person or not? So that was the sentiment that I was getting. You're going to pass them or not. And so what I, I remember telling my husband and he goes, honey, they want a rubber stamp is what they want. And I'm like, yeah. what the heck? He's like, they just want someone to say, boom, pass. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I do not, that does not compute. <laughs> so I mean, it just, you know, I and don't know. It's my, you, my personality that does not compute. No. And so. for you, you're like, well, that's information that a recipient parent and a donor conceived child is going to need to know like you, there's no genetic test for bipolar disorder. Like that's something that you would, you would need to know ahead of time. 
it would be for their medical history. Yeah. And, and I had parents that I would say on the report, this, you know, the, the donor is prone to depression and the parent, the independent parents would be like, no problem. We have that in our family too. Great. This isn't, this isn't about judging someone and saying you can't do something. No, this not is about a, information sharing. This is inf- uh, informed consent. Yeah. Informed consent. Um, anybody who has obviously listened to me talk about this a lot knows that when it comes to saying yay or nay to donors, my issue is like, I, I honestly don't give it. I don't, I do not care. I personally think that sure, whatever, there shouldn't be genetic medical differences that should be stopped. That to me isn't the reason to um, stop a donor from donating. To me, it is the most important thing is about informed consent. All of us have things in our in our family tree. Every one of us does. Like that's cool. But Absolutely. you need to have that information to properly take care of your child because as yes. we talked about, once the donation is done, potentially you are completely cut off from that donor and that information is gone. That means you are not going to have that information. And we have both heard, we've talked to recipient parents, we've talked to donor conceived kids of horror stories when it comes to diagnostic issues. And, mm. and children suffering needlessly for years. And all mm. they needed to know in their donor profile was has bipolar disorder. That's all they needed to know. Or so, prone to it, yeah. Or prone to it so that mm. the child could get a proper diagnosis or proper help when they get when they get older and potentially start showing signs. Absolutely. It, Again, that's, that, that can be life-changing. That can life be life-changing. Change the whole trajectory, yes. really. Um, mental illness is difficult to, to diagnose yeah. and, and it takes time and it takes, um, understanding yeah. of, of genetics and tendencies. Um, that's why doctors collect that information. Every time you go, they, it's the, fa- I mean, I just went the last week for mm-hmm. the checkup family health history again. Like, you know, they're always updating, Hey, we updated our system. We need you to fill out 10 yep. pages of paperwork again. So there it is the family history. I mean, they're so there's collecting it for a reason. Not for fun. I mean, every time I, I go in, they always are like, well, what what's your health history? Do you have any history of like high blood pressure, heart attack? And I always make it very clear that it's like half of my medical history is gone. I don't have half of it. I'm sperm donor conceived every single time. And I'm very lucky that the doctors who I work with are great. And they're like, no problem. We'll run extra tests. That's fine. And I'm very yeah. lucky about that. But I really drive that point home. Um and they are very receptive to the fact that, okay, she doesn't know. And they don't shrug that off. They're great. And that has literally saved my life at times. Yeah. Um, even yeah. even the ability to say, I don't know, and for them to be aware of that has saved my life because they've done extra tests. That's great. Yeah. I have, uh, I didn't know anything. And so I remember just always being uh, such a mystery to myself. Like, yeah, I don't know. What are they going to find? You know? And then um, when I did, when I, when I was able to do a DNA test and find out like I'm BRCA negative, I was just like, I cannot tell you the relief just because having no idea yeah. for so long and having some bit of information, just it, it's amazing how you think about these things more than people realize. Uh, and it's, I think it's one of those things where until it affects you, you don't know. It's true. And if you're lucky enough, it won't, you won't ever be like affected by it. But for the people who have had like, who have gone through diagnostic hell, they, they understand like the literal just torture it can be. Um, 
But let's go back to dealing with with ASRM and clinics and cryobanks. Yeah. Um, so yeah. again, you're saying you started off and you were you were in your words a bit naive. You're starting to learn like, oh shit, they do, they there seems to be a, a massive lack of care. They, as you said, they just wanted the rubber stamp. What else yeah. did you start to find and discover? Well, there was um, just a, a complete lack of education, even in like physicians' offices. Um, not, you know, and again, I would have experiences where I would go in and try to and convince them, you know, here's some education that your patients need. And it was just sort of dismissed. Um, and I think their priority was getting people pregnant. So I, in, in well, because that's where the money is. Yeah. And they didn't have the time to go into the education, but. Um, it was, I, I just came up, 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 just a lot of dead ends. I would knock on doors and go tr visit with doctors and try to get them to start incorporating education and counseling. Um, so the, the other thing that there was this real, um, we talked about secrecy before mm -hmm. and how, how they benefited from secrecy. I was shocked at the, the almost culture of secrecy that was, had settled, settled in. Um, there was one story of a, a family that, or a couple, they couldn't have a child and a friend of theirs had, and I'm going to change up the details a little bit. A friend of theirs had, uh, was going to be a, a donor, a donor. And, um, it was like a, more of a, an acquaintance. They knew this person through, you know, mm -hmm. not really close friends. Um, they came to me and, you know, in my mind, I'm like, that's a known donor, you know, the person, uh, they, and I said, do you want to meet with that person? Do you know that person? Do you want to have a session with them too? Let's talk about the details here. Let's go into how are you going to tell your child? How are you going to tell each other? How are you going to manage the relationship mm -hmm. over time? You know, just lots of things you have to talk about if it's yeah. a known donor. Absolutely not. They wanted no part of that because in their minds, it wasn't, it was going to be uh, anonymous. It was going, they weren't going to tell the kid the truth. Oh my God. So I wrote the report as, as I saw it, just exactly what happened. This is a, uh, a known donor. Um, and, I, and you know, they, they declined to have a session with the donor to, to, for further implications of how to get on, you know, and that they were counseled according to ASRM guidelines. I got a very angry practice manager call me from a clinic. How dare I put that this was a known donor in the report. This was an anonymous donor. And I said, no, they, they know the person that's a known donor. No, it is not. It is going to be anonymous. I said, but there's a difference between whether not anonymous, meaning you're not, you don't, anonymous means you don't know the person. They are yeah. unknown. But this it, is a known, they, they literally know this person. She literally said, fine, I'm going to throw your report in the trash and we'll redo it. And that's what they did. They threw it in the trash because I didn't change oh the wording. God. They demanded that I change, they demanded to change the wording to make it say anonymous. And I wouldn't. Ew. That's not what it was. They threw it in the trash. Never <sighs> heard from it again. Oh. This happened time and time again with agencies, um, egg agencies that I would be a screen for. Mm -hmm. I would screen their donors. And if I didn't pass a donor for legit reasons, according to the ASRM guidelines, they wouldn't call me back again. I would, they would never use me again. Mm, interesting. So because you were following the ASRM guidelines, they didn't want to work with you anymore. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so that started, you know, the first few times it happened, I was like, yeah, you know, maybe it's just a coincidence. And then it just started, it kept happening. And I was putting all these pieces together and I was like, this, this is, this is shady. 
you know, there, there's some shady stuff going down. How many, it, just a ballpark, but how many, how, how many times do you think you experienced that? I, I mean, I, I have no idea because, you know, one way I coped with it without just, um, wanting to quit. Well, let me just be honest there. There are, I have wanted to stop doing this work two dozen times, if not more over the past 10 years mm-hmm. because of the stuff I've seen. Yeah. the It's been so appalling and upsetting to me that it was hard to even be part of it in any capacity. Um, so the way I coped with it was to move on and just be like, you know what, if they're not going to work with me, fine. There'll be people that will eventually. But when the first, I, I may have, I said this in my book, the first, when I finally decided um, a couple years in, I think it was 2014 or so, I was like, I'm going to tell people right away that I, I, I follow the ASRM guidelines and I believe that you should be open with your child. So when they call me and they say, hi, I'd like to have a counseling session, I'm going to tell them right then, that's great. I want you to know in open, in, in honesty, mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the, in the spirit of being open, mm-hmm. I am going to tell you that you need to be open with your child. Okay, never mind. We'll find someone else. Click. Oh my God. I lost ah! 80% of my business that year that I said that I began to say to people in upfront before they even came to my office, you need to be open with your child. Oh, are you, yeah. you lost 80%. My, my business tanked that year. I, I was, I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have supported myself financially. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. The fact, okay, hold on, hold on. It was intended parents would call me and say, my doctor says I need to do this session. And I would say, okay, out of the gate, I need you to know I'm aligned with the ASRM and they say you need to be open. They wouldn't come see me because they didn't want to hear that. So So actively clinics, cryobanks and recipient parents. All just mostly recipient parents. Mostly recipient parents. Just done. No, not working with you. And that was like 2014. 2015. So we're talking, that wasn't that long ago. And it, so there's been great changes, you know, in the, in the most recent years. Um, but it was really difficult to, to get that message across in for most of the time I've been. Oh this, my God. That's. Yeah. It's shocking, isn't it? I know. And yet I was, it's not like, like, obviously that's never good. Like uh, the fact that that happened is never good, but I'm, I'm just the fact that that happened in less than 10 years ago is terrifying to me is terrifying because we constantly, as you certainly well know, we have this constant, um, anybody who works with the, who at least attempts to work with the industry with like, you know, negotiations and everything, we're constantly being pushed down our throats. Like, oh no, the industry is great now. Everything's awesome. This look ahead, all the improvements we've made, look at everything we've done. It's all hunky dory. And like, it's awesome. But then you find out, like, no, it's not. There's still all of these problems that still exist within donor conception. It isn't. And I, I don't know about you, but I'd love to get your opinion on it. People ask me constantly, is the infertility industry better now than what it was? And for me, I, I finally feel like it hasn't. I feel like it isn't better. I feel like they've only gotten better at lying. That's at least how I feel, but I would love to know what your opinion is. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think it's a it's a complex question, but I let me tell you this as an example that might help. Um, to, and to clarify too, when you said cryobanks, cryobanks stopped working with you. I want to be clear, cryobanks have never worked with me. Got it. Okay. Only ag- ag- agencies and clinics, because cryobanks weren't sperm banks weren't doing psychological testing. So they weren't coming to me. Sperm donors were not doing, they were not doing psychological so testing. So they were only doing donors. this with egg banks. Yes. Only, only egg, egg banks. Ba- why, why only egg banks and not sperm banks? Because egg donors, the process of retrieving eggs is much more involved. And so they- But the result to, is still the same. It is. But they're investing a lot in those donors um, and they're coming in and getting you know medicine and shots and they have to come on in a schedule. So they have to be, they have to be stable and reliable. And, um, and so egg donors were psychologically screened, but sperm donors were not. And now I just, and now, okay. I just want to underline this one. This was them following, I'm going to say ASRM guidelines, but legally, cause th- this is always a big question that I, I get. Egg donors are not legally held to a higher standard than sperm donors, but it does seem like. Egg donors are. are put through more. They are. And and the reason is because um, sperm donation, uh, sperm cryobanks did not do objective testing on sperm donors um, when I was doing. So from 2010 to, and I don't have the dates on when they started to do that. They were not doing, so they were doing temperament tests, like the Kiersey test. And some of them still just do the temperament test. That is not going to find pathology. That's just going to be like, kind of like your, what is the person like? Um, what what are they into? Uh, but what is their temperament? The, the, but the result is still the same. I mean, both sperm donors and egg donors are still just as much of a biological parent. If they understand the importance of doing this with egg donors, how do they not copy and paste with sperm donors? Well, sperm donation started before egg donation did. And um, psychological testing wasn't done. It was like, you know, med students they would grab and use. And um, and so they they didn't have anyone to really answer to um, because, they, you know, and I don't again, I don't know the internal workings. I the first time I s- spoke with anybody at a sperm bank was last year. What? And I've been doing this since 2010. Oh, my God. Yeah, they they're not they weren't transparent. I knew nothing about them. It was like trying to oh. you know, it was you couldn't get um they didn't share information. Okay, can I ask is this a is there sexism and misogyny behind that? Cuz that's what it certainly feels like. It seems more like it's a business model difference and that sperm donation is so much easier to collect. Um, and there is, so there, you have to remember with egg donors, there, there was an investment in these donors and they had an initial investment and they didn't want to lose on that investment. And that means agencies, clinics, you know, anyone involved with the recruiting of Mm. the egg donor and, um, and then the, the medic medicine and the protocol and, matching of the parent egg donation was done in a fresh cycles at first so they would literally match a, a couple to a donor and they would cycle together so it was a much bigger investment where sperm donation they 
could grab it, freeze it, and and keep it until someone needed it. It's a very different process. Yeah. And for anyone yeah. who's, like, curious, like, egg donation, I mean, you, the egg donor is taking a series of shots every day for, like, a month. So, I mean, it is, yes, it is a much bigger investment, whereas sperm donors, they can literally do the donation in their car. Like, mm-hmm. it's... It's not a big thing. They've been practicing since they were 12. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a very think, different process. Yeah. And the egg donors, um, yeah, and, and they, um, so they did have to go through more psychological testing and um, yeah. clearance um, before they could they could move forward with donation, for sure. Oh, my God. Okay. So what are aspects of the industry that you would really want recipient parents to understand. Um, as somebody who's now worked in the industry, tried to negotiate with the industry, what would you t- try and tell recipient parents that, like, this is something you you need to understand about how the industry works? Um, that you may not get all the answers that you want. And that uh, the one thing I say to most recipient parents is, when you are going to select your donor mm-hmm. is when you have the most power because after you purchase that donor that their gametes that you um that's it you you don't like you can go back you can request information but the door might close in your face so i encourage parents to ask questions and and kind of demand what they need at that point in the mm-hmm. process the problem is they're not educated often they don't have that education when I say not educated, I mean, no one's informed them yeah. of what they need to know. So yeah. they ha- they don't even know what they don't know. And so they don't know what to ask. And they don't realize that they have that power at that moment. Again, the, the our big theme with today's episode is secrecy. Too much yeah. secrecy. Yeah, too much secrecy. And so social media, especially Instagram, was sort of the, the you know, bank's uh, biggest nightmare. Um, yeah, it was. Especially sperm banks. Mm-hmm. Oh, and DNA testing. <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> no DNA one testing. saw 23andMe and Ancestry coming. Yeah. Like that was, I mean, if you told us in the 90s that like one day you're going to be able to spit in a tube and they're going to tell you their your ancestry and you can find relatives, we'd be like, okay, Star Trek. Like, sure. <laughs> right. That's it. it. Yeah, that's 100% yeah. going to exist. Like that, we did not see that coming. But, yeah. But thank God, I mean, thank, I'm so thankful that that people like donor conceived people and adoptees have access to that information now. You know, it's I'm so glad they do. So, the industry is, and and we we it's a multi billion dollar industry. Um, yes. they're as as we've obviously covered, it's their purpose is they want to make money. That's what they want. Getting people pregnant equals money. Mm-hmm. Um, are there ways in which you have found that they are really going after that buck that sorry i'm going to i'm going to rephrase that question um we know that this is a we know that this is a for profit industry uh we know that the only way that they make money is by getting people pregnant are there ways in which you have found that they pad the bill that parents might not realize or that we may not realize? Because, again, they work in secrecy and we need to take that veil back. Are there things that you have found that people might not be aware of? 
Yeah, I know it's kind of like the beginning. Um, I know you asked the question, has it gotten better? And I was told last year that they are doing psychological testing on sperm donors now. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, it's not regulation. It's not regulation. Is, I just want to make sure yeah. that everyone understands that. Maybe. The problem is my husband always says this. It's a fox watching the hen house. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are having, if you're doing in-house psychological testing in the bank by person salaried by the bank, yeah, how can they be objective? Yeah. I, you know, um, so th- that's tricky. But so, and you know, but there's other ways that what's so hard about it is that you get, I get it in my information from my clients direct. So uh, so they're going through there and m- many of them don't know any better. So then when they're telling me, oh, this is what I got from the bank, this is their first time with this. So it is not like they've gotten all this information and now they're coming to me to report some news. No, mm-hmm. like they're just telling me innocently. Um, so I'll hear things like as they're happening and I'll have to put, I have to do detective work and put things together and be like, wait, wait a minute. Why are you paying more for a um, donor of color, a sperm donor of color? Whoa. Why is it so much? Whoa. Expensive? Yeah. And so I've, I've been like, what's going on there. And so, you know, always, I always put the detective hat on first, like, let me make sure I'm trying to get the facts. I don't want to jump to conclusions because, but that's the problem with secrecy with secrecy. You cannot, there's so many unknowns that it's like, you don't, you, you just don't, you can't trust. You just can't trust. And that's, what's so frustrating is they're almost, they're almost their own worst enemy in that way, because this information gets out. You know, the other thing I've heard recently. I'm sorry. My right now, my yeah. my 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 throat <laughs> is in my stomach. My stomach is in my no. throat. They had to pay more to get a donor yes. of color. Yes, I've I've heard that from several clients that the that their vials of sperm were priced higher. Now, whether that's still going on or not, I have no idea. What Again, year was this? That happened. I believe that was last year. Okay, well, I mean, that's not long ago. Um, oh, that's what I'm saying, but that's why, how mysterious it is. It literally changes. Like, I'll find out about a new thing they're doing from a client that tells me, oh, they're charging um, different prices for different vials now. Now they're doing a vial for different, like each procedure is different. For ICSI, yes. it's a, vi- a certain vial. For IUI, it's a different vial. Um, and so what I what I deduced, what I guessed was that they're spreading out the man's sperm more. So in an ICSI, you only need a couple sperm. You don't need, I don't know actually the amount you need in that vial, but you only need one sperm yeah. to inseminate and to, to fertilize an egg. Um, and so there's probably less in an ICSI. I did confirm with a, I did speak to a bank and they said there's more in an IUI vial than an ICSI vial. And then an IVF has a different number of sperm. So they're finding a way where it's not just like the same amount of sperm per vial anymore. They're getting more out of each guy. More ICSI is being done than ever before. I, okay, I'm sorry. I'm still a little, little traumatized right now. Um, Because I'd like to specifically talk uh, more about your patients who are part of the BIPOC community. You, um, because I think that this is unbelievably important and it is not, talked about enough but can you talk a little bit more about the experiences your patients have had with dealing with the infertility community who are not white yeah who yeah who are part of like the BIPOC community 
So what I hear time and time again is that there, the selection of donors is very limited yeah. for, um, for people within the community. And so it's, they don't have much choice. Um, and then that's, that's it's so it terrifying. really is hard. When it's so scary. They, what I think really bothered me was the idea that you didn't have much choice, but you also had to pay more. That one, <laughs> that, that threw me for Fucking a Fucking Christ. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Um, and, you know, supply demand, I guess. I don't know where that would be the argument. Again, this isn't, I, this is information I got from clients. So I cannot confirm this because I never spoke with the bank about this. Oh, I want to be clear. I cannot confirm this. I, um, and I'm this sorry. Is, I'm just going to throw up for a bit. No. <laughs> okay. I'm, mm, all right. Yep. Nope. The information needs to be said. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that is the experience is that there is, there are limited donors to choose from. And so it's a much long, can be a longer process for them to go through that donor selection process. Um, if that donor falls through for whatever reason, you know, maybe the genetic, uh, they they don't have a genetic matchup. They have, both have a, are carrier for a, a, a disorder, um, or for some reason, like in an egg donation situation, the eggs don't work talk about like lengthening their their process so um it can be really challenging for people of color oh my god uh, to find donors oh mm -hmm. jesus Christ. i don't i people who watch my tiktok know that i i have a bell that i i ring and i attach different post-its to whenever yeah. i i need to um ring the important thing and i really wish i had my bell right now and i had white supremacy just stapled on top of it so I could freaking ring it right now, but oh my God. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So as we all kind of digest and we swallow that, um, and it is something that I would really, really appreciate if parents who are looking to be recipient parents, when you are going through the donor catalogs, I know that you're specifically focusing on looking for your donor, look at the diversity of the donors. And if you're noticing a massive lack of diversity in that clinic or cryobank, please don't use them. Please, please don't fucking use them. I beg you, please don't. I, this behavior has to stop. And the only way to stop it until we can get some freaking laws put in is affect their bank account. Stop using the clinics and cryobanks that do not show that they have diversity. I beg of you, please stop. Um, sorry, that was my just very angry rant. Um, there was a, uh, a story you also recently shared with me about a, a new tactic that the, uh, I believe you said a cryobank was using. And I would love for you to, to share this new tactic. Cause it, it, to me, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but it, it really seems like extortion. Jogging my memory here. Um, the uh, it was an exclusive. Donor. Oh yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. So I would love. Yeah, I, client told me. Again, I'm not yeah, a lawyer, but this yeah. th it's like one of those things. But if it quacks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it's it's, it's extortion. Um, yeah. So and you know again, these are things my clients tell me. Um, was that the the in they had an option for an exclusive donor. An exclusive donor means that. This is a sperm donor that only that family receives mm -hmm. all of the donation that that man has provided. So that means no um, other siblings, the potential for big sibling plots like you talk about 
um, out there that many people are worried about, that potential um, is eliminated. Yeah, that, that banjo music out there that yeah, we're worried yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, so the latest thing I heard was that if the um, if the if the parents to be wanted this exclusive donor, they were going to have to buy all of his vials, and apparently he had something along the lines of twenty five vials mm-hmm. of sperm, and they're about a thousand dollars a piece, a piece, so roughly, you know, and so they would have to spend that much money to have an exclusive donor. So you're just afford- dropping twenty five thousand dollars on one donor well, on just the vials. Just the vials. And you don't even know if it's going to work, if the procedure is going to work, or if you're going to, you're definitely not going to need probably all of those vials. No. And for you, the fact that you are being charged an exuberant amount of money to protect your child, Mm -hmm. you are, no, oh my God, it's. It's taking advantage of people who are in a such a difficult situation. You know, they hear yeah. from from you and from people that are donor conceived saying, "Guys, I, you know, having a hundred siblings is hard. Can we let's try to avoid this?" Look, this is and an, they say, "I want to," and they go, "Okay, yeah. great. Here's an exclusive donor." The bank goes, "We have a solution. Exclusive donor. Here you go." And it's twenty. That'll be twenty five grand, please. Oh my! That's not that's not viable for people. That's, that's not, not financially. No. I mean, some people. I mean, it's it's exem- it's exceptionally expensive just to afford a couple vials, let alone twenty five. Mm-hmm. And and they spe- so they're oh. having to make a choice between multiple, ha- you know, a big sibling pod, a ha- you know, a, a large sibling pod for their child, or money they don't have going into debt. You know, ah. just yeah, it's. Uh. it's it's tough. It's, um, you know, I, I don't. To quote my, my to quote my favorite. Ethical. No, to quote my favorite movie, uh, uh, Clue, you know, Flames. Flames. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, in your opinion, again, as somebody who's worked with the industry, what are our challenges moving forward to get this industry regulated? Like, why, why is this so challenging to get this industry regulated? When it feels so common sense. Because there are powerful groups that have been established for a long time that are actively blocking legislation and working against legislation to regulate. No industry wants to be regulated. None. I mean, it's just. Well, we no see, we have a history of seeing that. Like, no, send the send the children down to the coal mines. They like it. It's like right. No. So, <laughs> so they'll fight. So so companies and, and industries will fight with everything they have to not be regulated. The problem is if they can't regulate themselves. Yeah. You know, then you've got to have some basic basic rules that that encourage ethical practices. So it's I know it's kind of like unfortunate because i mean i know there's some negative things to regulation negative consequences of being regulated um but the pendulum has swung is too too far in the other direction and you know it's we've got to have um some middle ground and what do you think like as consumers as recipient parents what are ways in which they can fight back what what can they do to fight back against this industry that is within their control? 
Well, my biggest, I believe you, you with the, with their purchasing power, you know, I think that's their biggest, um, they, if they can go in and demand that the banks raise the standards and, and provide what they're looking for. Um, I think there's going to be arguments to that, you know, mm -hmm. um, the banks will say that, that they're going to have to raise prices, but I'll remind you like what you said earlier, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So until I start seeing some profit margins of these banks, well, you know, I'm going to question how much, I mean, you already as like $25,000 for an exclusive donor, like what? Okay. That's already not, not affordable. Fine. Raise it to a million dollars. It doesn't, you, no one's affording that anyway. I mean, it's like the prices are already comically, are already comically high. They're already well, high with no regulations. I mean, I, I always kind of joke that it's like you're paying $1,000 for a vial and you don't even have a guarantee that it's not pancake batter. You get no guarantees already. I did read a review from uh your book because I, I was going through yeah. all the reviews and they're all extremely they're all, all extremely good but you had one review that reminded me a lot of the what donor conceived people are told a lot by the industry um okay. because donor conceived people were constantly trying to lobby for regulations and we're told no a lot um, we're told not a lot. We're told that our opinion doesn't matter. Um, it's not important. Um, what matters the most to the industry and to the stakeholders is the recipient parents. Hands down, that's that's who they care about because that's who's paying for it. Those That's the yeah. pocketbook. And you had one comment that really reflected that for me. The comment said, this person, uh, you, is obviously biased. Mm, yeah. And I found that to be such an odd review on your book and because they meant it in a negative way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the comment we've also gotten from the industry and stakeholders is like, we can't listen to donor conceived people about donor conceived laws because you're too biased. And I find hmm. that to be. That's weird logic. It's very weird logic. Because these you are the ones who have the lived experience. You're the ones who have are directly impacted by this practice. Mm -hmm. You're the ones who uh, are the most knowledgeable about it. And so, um, yeah, and I would say everyone has biases for one. I mean, to say you're biased is say you're human. <laughs> so, you know, of course we, everyone has biases. That's kind of silly to, to, to me. Um, but, well, also, I would say as recipient parents, you're also biased. Why is that bias being taken? Bias. Why is that bias being taken more seriously than my bias, who actually has to yeah. live with the consequences more than anyone else in this con in this equation? Well, you know, and it's and it's always and I it's interesting because um, to me that just says that when when someone says that, you know, I'm kind of looking at are you ready to hear? You know, and and if if I come across bias, then you're then you're probably not ready to hear this yet. Yeah, and and that means that your own biases are getting in the way. So ironically, what we call out someone else is usually what we're practicing ourselves. Yeah. You know, like if we're calling someone out and saying you're that, it's usually our disowned stuff. But I, if I want to learn about something, 
I'm going to go to the person who intimately knows that something, that topic. I mean, it's, I'm not going to ask yeah. someone that doesn't understand it. I want, I truly want to know it and I truly understand what it's all about. That's I'm going to ask the person who has direct experience with it. I mean, That's if it. I wanted to learn ballet, I'm going to go to somebody who's been a ballet dancer, ballet sure. dancer for years. Yeah. That's but I, I'm not going to go want, to a juggler. I'm going to go to a ballet dancer. But if I want to hear what I want to hear, and I don't want to be told something that doesn't feel mm -hmm. right, and I don't want to be told something that's going to make me uncomfortable, then I'm not going to go to that person that might be saying something that feels uncomfortable, and I'm going to call them. I'm going to discredit them. I'm going to say, now that that person doesn't know what they're talking about because I'm not ready to hear that yet. It's not about me. It's about them, right? It's just easy to deflect like that. I mean, we've all done it. I've done it, I'm sure. So. I mean, I feel like that is this that lesson that you're that you just said, I think could be copy and paste when we're talking about like any kind of human rights issue. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like that is that that is a very universal truth that we need to carry within us, not just for like obviously donor conception, but when listening yeah. to anybody with a different lived experience than us, um, mm -hmm. who is marginalized in a in a way. Um, so Jana, I, you are as always absolutely the best. And I'm sure anybody <laughs> listening to this is going, holy shit, how do I get more Jana? Which I Aww. fully understand that sentiment because everybody needs more Jana. So how Aww. can people get more Jana? Yeah. Well, I have a podcast out. I've been doing it since 2019. It's by the same name of the book. Why your, maybe. your sound is so impeccable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, I got thrown into that world because I was desperately wanting to keep this conversation going and another podcast was going off the air. So, um, so find me there. Cause I have over 70 episodes. Um, I've also, am you know, my book, you can get my book. I'm online. I'm on social media. At and Jana you have a workbook, not just your book. You also yeah. have a workbook. So that's it, fabulous. It's a companion. Yeah. Companion guide to the book. Um, and then I also have, you can find me on social media at Jana Rupnow LPC. LPC stands for licensed professional counselor. So that is my uh, credentials. And um, yeah, you can find me and I'm constantly trying to keep the book fresh by adding stuff out there um, on social media and even putting things like courses and parent mm -hmm. education, because even though, you know, like I am a child focused, I am all about teaching the parents because it, it's like a, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Like yeah. if we can get to the parents and, and educate and inform, and then they can start out the gate knowing some of the things to do and say and how to interact with their child. Brilliant. You know, we've made a world of difference for those kids. And that is what, in in my opinion, I mean, as much as I, you know, I want the donor conceived people to lead the charge, and as we should, I do know we're not going to get anywhere without the recipient parents. We need sure. the recipient parents to be backing us up to, because that is the only, those are the only people that the industry is going to listen to. That's the only people and, that the stakeholders are going to listen to is the recipient parents. They, they, they've made it very clear they don't give a shit about us. Made it very clear. And, yeah. And I will remind you that the recipient parents and the donor can see people, you are a family. You are the family that I care about, that I want to make healthy and well and happy because it's not about, don't, it's not, we're not saying donor conception doesn't work or people can't be happy. No, we're saying you absolutely can. I'm saying you absolutely can, but the, but here are some things you need to know first mm -hmm. that will help you in that process. And so by working together, parents and DCP, donor can see people, you you can make the biggest difference in the industry. You can demand change.
So you're the power. You are the power. And Jana, thank you again. It is always a freaking pleasure. (laughs) Thanks Um, for having me. It is always, always a pleasure. And everyone, please go follow Jana for all of my recipient parents or soon-to-be recipient parents. Please go purchase Three Makes a Baby. It's an easy read. You absolutely, it should be a required textbook for anybody who is going to become a recipient parent. And even if your child is donor conceived and they're 30 years old, I would still suggest reading it. I think that there's still things that you could learn. Absolutely. There's still emotional stuff that can be coming up. And I I talk with parents when their kids are grown still. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if you want to, you know, talk about International Donor Conception Awareness Day. The theme this year, it's on April 27th, the theme is truth and transparency. So this, everything we've been talking about goes so perfectly with that. Ugh. We're encouraging parents to talk. I love and tell it. their child. And if you haven't and your child's older, it's okay. It's not too late. And I do have tips for telling at, in middle school, in high school and, and beyond. So there's, it's never too late to tell and get some support if you need help. Ah, that is absolutely wonderful. And to the parents who have not told their child yet, and they're realizing, oh shit, we we let's guide you through it contact jana um there are tips there are ways on how you can do it but it's definitely like you gotta breathe deep and um yeah step step into that path and start going down that one um but jana thank you again as always you are a freaking star and i am so glad we've got you on our team (laughs) thank you so are you god (laughs) all right Uh, Thank you all so much. And for everybody listening to Insemination, remember, we uh, fully film this. So if you'd rather watch this, please go to YouTube. The entire episode is there waiting for you. Please follow on social media at Laura High Five everywhere, whether that's on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and obviously YouTube. Also, um, wait, yes, sorry. I'm still learning how to do all this stuff. Uh, Please write a review on the podcast thing because apparently that helps in this world and I'd like for this to continue. Y'all are amazing. Go be awesome. Go spread like a sperm donor and sp- no, don't do that actually. Don't don't don't. I was going to make a fun metaphor and it just turned really gross really fast. Just just be a good person, guys. Just just don't suck, all right? Thank you all. Have a great day. <laughs>